Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we welcome your presence now here by your Holy Spirit, and we ask you to use your word to teach us. We ask you to use your word to empower us and motivate us in regards to this matter of spiritual gifts and how they could be used. And I pray that you would unleash from this campus and our Fisher's campus, an army of people who want to see how you might use them in ways that would be stunning and glorious and life-changing. And so use your word now to speak to us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we began a short little section here in Romans 12 that'll take us all the way to chapter 16, and I stated to you that what Paul's aim in this particular section of scripture is, is to show us a Christian mindset. And the point of last week was simply that a Christian mindset works, or think of it differently, that the way in which being a living sacrifice is meant to translate in your life is this, it's meant to follow you, to be with you, to enter into every arena of your life. It's meant to be something that you live with and something that lives with you. So last Sunday we talked about three anchors that relate to what it means to be a living sacrifice, this Christian mindset, and those three anchors were, Lord, I'm yours, Lord, change me, and third, Lord, lead me. And it's important that our kids are in worship with us. I hope you know that. And part of the reason that I know that, not only from the benefit of having my own kids in the context of corporate worship, but got another illustration of that uh, last Sunday evening. I got a text from uh, one of our parents who said that their uh, daughter had been taken to the hospital on Sunday evening and had had to have stitches in her knee, and next to her bed when she got home, she pulled out her notes from Sunday morning about what it meant for Lord to be, I'm yours, and she wanted that right next to her bedstand or her nightstand, on her nightstand, was because she wanted to remind herself that when she woke up the next morning of what we talked about on the Lord's Day, that being that she's the Lord, she belongs to him. And even it showed up in an ER room, it showed up when a little kid's getting stitches, that little Sarah here with the bandage on her knee has her little notes, right? And this is what it means to be a living sacrifice. So the lesson is, you know, listen carefully because you never know when you're gonna get stitches, right? (laughs) 
I'm serious. It's as practical as that, that this idea of being a living sacrifice walks with you wherever you go, whether it's an ER room or whether it's your workplace or whether it's difficulties that you face in life, that a Christian mindset is meant to be something that you embrace and cherish and something that you make a part of who and what you are in every arena. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is that life changing. It's meant to be a mindset. It's, it's meant to be something that works. Now today we're gonna take another step in this regard. We're going to see the way in which living sacrifices or how this Christian mindset actually translates into service. How do living sacrifices serve? What you need to know, what Paul is doing here is he's taking the first step in applying this idea of living sacrifices by applying it to the church. Now, give you a brief overview of where Paul's gonna go in Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13. So he's gonna apply it to the church today in verses three to eight. Let me show you where else he's gonna go. Beginning in verse nine, so if you have a Bible, look at verse nine through uh, verse 16. Paul is gonna explain how we are to live in such a way that our lives are marked by love and Christ-like character. And then in verses 14 to 21, so that first section was nine to 13, then 14 to 21, he's gonna help us understand how do you respond in the midst of opposition when you're being persecuted and bad things are being said about you? How do you apply your Christian mind in that particular scenario? And then in chapter 13, in verse one, how to be a model citizen in the midst of uh, government that's been given by God but sometimes isn't favorable towards Christianity. So how do you apply a Christian mindset there? And then in verses eight to 14, what Christian maturity looks like in the last days or in dark days, and what it means to owe no one anything except love, and what it looks like to know that salvation, this is verse 11, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So what Paul's gonna do is take this Christian mindset that little Sarah applied in an ER room, you're gonna apply it in all sorts of arenas of your life, apply it when persecution or hardship comes, gonna apply it as it relates to living in a society with a governmental system that sometimes is for us and often historically is against us. I'm gonna apply that when uh, we're asked to have Christian character, when it's difficult. But where Paul starts is he starts inside God's house. He starts with the church. He starts with us individually in regards to our gifting and the matter of spiritual gifts. So. It's very interesting to me that the first application of being a living sacrifice is directed towards how we think about ourselves, how we serve in the context of the body, and then finally, how we think very specifically about the gifts that God has given us. So there's an application towards thinking, towards living, and towards serving. We're gonna look at each of these. Beginning in verse three, Paul invites us, encourages us, exhorts us to think with humility. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So once again, Paul starts with thinking. He starts with the mind, and he's encouraging us to think humbly. So having a Christian mindset means that we think correctly about a myriad of, of issues, but primarily we have to think correctly, we have to think biblically about ourselves. 
And for that matter, we have to think biblically about our gifting and how God has empowered his spirit within us to do things that are extraordinary. So last week I said that the problem with our thinking is that we don't think about our thinking. Paul adds, I think, a new nuance here. The problem is not only that we don't think about our thinking, but the problem also is that we don't think about how highly we think about ourselves. So I can't imagine two more dangerous realities. One, not thinking about your thinking, or secondly, not realizing how self-centered our thinking can be. In fact, if you were to leave today, if I could just help you move one step in that direction, you start thinking about your thinking and thinking about how much you think about yourself, that would really be helpful for all of us. A Christian mind essentially comes from a humble heart. You can't have a Christian mind without a humble heart. So verse three begins, for by the grace given to me. Because he uses the word for, that means it's a link to what was previously said in verses one and two. So this is inferential in light of the instruction regarding being a living sacrifice. For by the grace given to me, Paul is now referring to the way in which God has graced him with particular giftings that now he's going to use for the benefit of the Roman church. He's also modeling this idea of humility. Paul is going to say some things to them. He's gonna give them pastoral admonition, but he's acknowledging that everything he's gonna say is only because of God's grace. And then he says, I say to everyone among you. So he's gonna make another pastoral appeal like he did in chapter 12 and verse one, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's gonna do the same thing, but now he's gonna use the words I say, and then he's gonna apply it to everyone. So every single person that he's writing to needs to heed and listen to this instruction regarding both giftedness and also as it relates to humility. I hope you understand the importance of why Paul starts this way. The call to think with humility is all of our responsibility. Doesn't matter how prominent or behind the scenes your gift is, doesn't matter whether you are a person whose gifts are obvious and you have lots of lights and you're in front of people or whether you're behind the scenes, The fact of the matter is, is Paul has a sweeping application of this call for humility, and the reason is this, is that because every single one of us at some level struggles with the issue of pride. To be human is to be proud. The battle with pride is a battle that we all have to fight, so no matter no. No matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, no matter how old you are or how outstanding or mundane your abilities are, all of us need to embrace humility in our thinking. We gotta think not only about our thinking, but also think about how much we think about ourselves. That's his point. Pride is a a sneaky sin. can show up in all kinds of ways. So Paul's instruction is first, that we ought to think about ourselves in a particular way. Notice he gives a warning here about what we ought not to do. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's a really interesting way to say that. Paul could have said something like, don't think about yourself. Or he could have said, think humbly about yourself. But instead what he said is this, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. 
Do you notice that there's an assumption in that sentence? The assumption in that sentence is this, that we tend to think highly of ourselves. So you need to mark it somewhere down in your mind and in your heart that the problem with humanity, the problem with us humans, even after conversion, is not that we think too low of ourselves. Rather, our problem is that we naturally think highly of ourselves. Parents, just wait till the first time your children learn that when they get done doing something, they can go, ta-da, and then they'll do it over and over and over. You ever been to a recital where the uh, teacher has taught the children to like, get bow after they're done doing their, uh, their little performance, and then they keep bowing as they're making their way off the stage, right? And as a parent, you're like, stop bowing, right? You just want them to stop, because once a child, or boy or girl, gets in his mind and heart that, that I can either say, ta-da, look at what I've done, or I can bow, it just, something clicks within their soul because there is this natural bent towards look at me, praise me, love me. So the problem with us human beings is not that we think too low of ourselves. On the contrary, it is that our natural orientation is to think highly of ourselves. Even if the gifts that we've been given have nothing to do with us, it's very easy for us to take those and make them a mirror that reflects what we think about ourselves. In fact, I would even argue many issues related to low self-esteem, culture talks a lot about that, are often covert pride issues where we want to think differently about ourselves and so we get depressed and down and the real problem is, is the fact that we want to think highly of ourselves and when we don't we get frustrated and angry. The problem is not that we think too low, it's that we think way too high of ourselves and so Paul cautions us here. Secondly, instead of thinking about ourselves more highly than what's appropriate, he says we are to think with sober judgment. What does sober judgment mean? What Paul is doing here is pulling from Greco-Roman culture and highlighting the contrasting virtue to pride, which was this idea of sober judgment, which essentially is a balanced, sensible, and realistic view of oneself. That's why the New Living Translation renders this as, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. I mean, after all, isn't that what just drives you crazy about people who are proud? They just seem to have no clue as to what is real. They think they're awesome. And I'm awesome, you're not awesome, right? I mean, that's, the, the mentality is just that there's a, a, a wrong thinking that's happening inside of the heart. And so sober judgment means a healthy dose of reality. Third, verse three provides further clarity than in the context of this sober judgment. Paul says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what he's saying here is this, that this sober judgment is rooted in and based upon the sovereign grace of God. That God has assigned, it says, a measure of faith and that we are to assess ourselves based upon that sober judgment. He wants believers to realize that every, any gift that we have, any ability that we have been given is only because God has supplied it. All things have been from him and through him and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. So sober judgment comes from understanding, God, everything that I have, everything that I'm, I'm, I'm good at, every thought that I've ever had that is smart or brilliant or articulate, everything I've ever done that's created some measure of blessing or fruitfulness is only because of you. 
couple weeks ago we learned that theology should lead to doxology. Well, theology should not only lead to doxology, theology should also lead to humility. Later on we'll learn about spiritual gifts in this passage, but this particular section is highlighting that humble thinking is a critical part of the discerning and the use of those gifts. And Paul wants us to understand that the gifts that you have are those gifts have been given to you by God's will, not by anything in and of yourself. I mean, there are ways that you think, there are things that you're good at, and those things are there because God put them there. I mean, if you're a young person, a teenager, a child, there are things that you're gonna experience in life that you are really, really good at, and no one taught you how to be good at that. Your brain works in a particular way, you're able to think and process things, you have unusual physical ability or mental ability, or you're unusually musically talented. Those are all gifts that God gives. Now, you can hone them and shape them and develop them, but at the end of the day, they are gifts that are from him. In fact, even if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, and I'm thrilled that you're here, even you know that there are things within you that are there that you had nothing to do with. There are natural talents and ability. It's just crazy. You have an ability to think a particular way or speak a particular way or the things that you do, and you know those aren't from you. And the Bible says those are from a creator, from your God, who put them in you as a marker that he exists and also as a warning that if he's done that sort of gracious thing and he is your creator, he's also a God who holds us accountable when we step out from the boundaries of his declared will. This verse cautions believers about the real and ongoing dangers of pride in our lives, that we ought to be constantly on guard from using gifts that were intended to be conduits for God's glory as mirrors to make much of ourselves. And when you understand that God is the source of giftedness, when you understand what Paul is driving at, then it helps us to avoid two extremes. It helps us to avoid applauding ourselves when we succeed as if we did it on our own, but it also helps to avoid another thing that I think a number of you may struggle with that you've never thought of in this category. It helps you to avoid berating ourselves when we underperform. You see, pride can surface in both self-praise and pride can surface surface in self-loathing. When you are not just discouraged that you didn't do as well as you could do, no, you're actually in despair, you actually get mad because you think you should do better. A number of years ago I was reading something, I think it was a book by Tim Keller that helped me extraordinarily in this regard. I'd never really understood this category. And part of this helped me on Sunday nights in particular. Because Sunday nights, when I'm getting ready for bed, there's just sort of this dark cloud that sort of just comes over me as I think about the Lord's Day and wonderful things happen, but I start rehearsing my sermon in the back of my head of all the ways, the things I should have said differently, the way it could have gone better, and then think of all the things that, that I did to get ready for Sunday and then realize that Monday morning, the next sermon starts. It's a very dark moment. <laughs> and there are times when I'm not just discouraged, I'm actually in despair. But when I'm in despair, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is I wanted to do better, not for the Lord, I wanted to do better for me. And I'm disappointed because I didn't do this and I didn't do that and I didn't. And getting to the root of that, realizing, you know what, that despair is actually pride just in a different cloak has helped to slay that thing in my life and helped me to find new levels of victory that, you know what, yes, it didn't go as well that I had hoped that it did, it's just time to go to bed and believe the next morning there's gonna be fresh grace. So good night, we'll see you in the morning. Good night, despair. I'm going to rise again the next day. 
There's also a stewardship issue here. When you see your gifts as those which are being given by God and by his grace to you, it increases your motivation to maximize them. It increases your desire to grow in them and to be the very best steward of what God has entrusted to you. So humility doesn't create passivity. No, 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 humility actually liberates you to work really, really hard, but you don't work hard for you, you work hard because God has given you these gifts and you wanna maximize them for his glory and for his honor. It means to be a person who God made you to be and to use those gifts in the most effective way. So what happens is humility actually frees you to use your gifts for worship without worshiping your gifts. And what makes all the difference in the world is the orientation of your mind and heart. And finally, this passage also calls us to not set aside our gifts by not using them. You know, you can be really self-centered and taking credit for your gifts. You can also be really self-centered by setting them aside and not being willing to use them. It's gotta be just the right ministry. It's gotta be just the right people. It's gotta be exactly the kind of scenario that, that you think is only the scenario that you can serve in or Maybe you got burned in another church or another setting, you got really worn out with something, and now for a number of years you've been resistant about getting involved because you're worried about the same thing happening again. And the fact of the matter is you've set your gifts and you've set them aside, and the real issue is you don't want to get involved because of you. And what Paul says is we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We sort of have this mentality of I'm only gonna serve if it's safe. And listen, where there's people, it's not safe. <laughs> as long as we're here, it's not safe. So join the unsafe movement of using your gifts. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, whether it's engendering in, in applause or whether it's taking our gifts and sidelining them. Humility embraces the fact that giftedness is not about me. It's not about the person that's been gifted. So. The first application of being a living sacrifice relates to how we use our gifts. What's the mindset that we need to have? We need to focus on a humble thought process as it relates to who we are and why God has done what he's done. Here's the second thing, and that is Paul also calls us to live in unity in verses four and five. He says this, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So now what Paul does now is he takes this individual mindset of thinking humbly and he applies it in the broader framework of the body of Christ or to the church. He uses, uses this familiar metaphor of the body he uses this in 1 Corinthians 12, specifically as it relates to spiritual gifts, and he does so because the human body is made up of individual parts that contribute to the whole. And those individual parts, some that are more glorious than others, are all very, very important. And he uses this body analogy in order to make the point that all of the parts of the body really matter. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the, hand, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. What Paul's essentially saying is that every part of the body is important to the whole. And there's great diversity in the body, and yet there's also incredibly important unity. So verse four says, as in one body, 
we have many members. So there's a body, and it has many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So there's two things, that the body has many members, and then secondly, that each member has a different function. Now there are some really important things that we need to understand, just even foundationally, about a biblical worldview. The idea is this, that the whole of the body is really important, and that runs countercultural to the American culture in which we live. In our culture, we prize individualism and personal expression. It's all about me and what I want and my rights and my freedoms. Our hero narrative in our culture, as I've said before, is to figure out who you are. Look deep inside of you, figure out who you are, and then don't let anybody stand in your way. Who cares about the effects on your parents, your family, the culture, society, the church? Doesn't matter. Just be who you are and let them deal with it. That's the hero narrative. We make movies about it, we write books about it, we celebrate it. Those are the people who are the heroes in our American culture. And in the Bible, essentially says, look, you're important, but you're not ultimate. Other cultures around the world have more of a group mentality. Eastern cultures, the family, the culture, that really matters. The individual contributes to the whole. Not our culture, our culture, it's all about the individual. We're culturally conditioned to think individualistically. What's more, our culture also attaches value to function. Undergirding issues like euthanasia and abortion is a fundamental premise within our culture that if you really can't have good function, then you really don't have value. So if you're old and you don't do a whole lot, then you're really not, your life is not very valuable. Or if you're not born and you're not functionally outside of the womb, then you have less value. Enter the Bible that essentially gives us this other category that says no, there's equal value, but there's different function. Function doesn't equal value. Just because you have a different function doesn't mean you have any less value. And so what we have here are two fundamental mindsets that relate to the body of Christ, relate to individual gifts, and relate to the whole. And the Bible essentially is saying here that inherent value that's given to the individual is set in the framework of the whole. Meaning, the Bible is not overly individualistic, nor is the Bible overly communal. What the Bible does is it elevates the importance of function without equating it with value. So that every member of the body of Christ is value, valuable, but not every member has the same function. Every member has the same value, but we're not individually ultimate. Every member has value, but the whole is what we contribute to. Listen, this is an important distinction not only as it relates to the church, But this relationship dynamic shows up, this function value piece shows up in husband-wife relationships, that men and women are fundamentally equal, but they don't have the same function. And in our culture, that that doesn't make any sense to people. If you don't have the same function, you can't be equal. No, the Bible says you could be equal in essence and equal in image, but have different functions. Same thing, employer-employee, Listen, brother or sister, if you have a significant role where you have lots of people who report to you, you need to understand something, that you have a different function, but you don't have more value because of the number of people who report to you. And one of the beautiful things about having a Christ-like mindset is to realize that that this function doesn't mean that I'm more valuable. Same thing with um, church leadership and the church body. Just because I have the privilege of teaching you today does not mean that I have more value than any of you or in relationship to citizen and government. 
There's equal value, but not equal function. So in this context of spiritual gifts, this is crucial to understand because sometimes people can associate that the more noticeable, the more upfront, the more public gifts are the more valuable gifts, and Paul will have none of that. The reality is, is that all of the gifts matter. They're all a part of what it means to be the body of Christ. And so there is this beautiful functionality and valuing of one another. And verse five continues it, by helping us to see how we belong to one another. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So he takes this idea not only of value and function, but now he addresses how we belong to one another, and the first thing he says is that we belong to one another because we're all part of the body of Christ. So all these spiritual gifts are part of what it means to express the body life of the person and work of Jesus. So the unifying thing that brings us together, the thing that binds us, is the fact that every believer is part of this beautiful bride, the church, or the body of Christ. And you need to know that when this first idea was um, taught in the early church, it was revolutionary. Because what it meant was that people from all sorts of different walks of life that were very divided and very hierarchical were now brought together and had a new relationship that trumped all relationships. For instance, look at Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage does not mean that it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek anymore. It's not saying that it doesn't matter if your God-given gender is male or female. He's not leveling all of those things. What he is saying, though, is that the beautiful thing about the church is in maleness and femaleness, there's something even greater that relates to your identity than your gender or even your racial background or your ethnicity, whether you're Jew or Greek. He doesn't say you're no longer a Jew or you're no longer Greek. You're still that, but the fact is there's something beautiful that's even over and above those categories of race, of culture, and of gender. He's saying that Christianity provides a framework for a unity that is much deeper. That's when church is beautiful, it's when people from all walks of life come together, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, men and women, young and old, and their common banner is Praise God from whom all blessings flow. When that happens, the church is something beautiful and glorious. And then he says something more. And we are individually members one of another. It's interesting to me that he says it this way. He could have said it, we're individually members of Christ. He he changes the, the wording, the metaphor here, because previously he said we are all one body in Christ, and now he says we're individually members one of another. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that while we have this common relationship with our oneness in Christ, that there is a tangible and practical connection that we have to one another, that we, in effect, belong to each other. So it's not just that we're part of the body of Christ, it is that, but that's not the only thing. It's that we actually have a, a belonging to one another, that we are fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
That's why this church, this assembly of people, it has to be more. Eventually, it has to be more for you than just the place that you go to church at. This this needs to be a place that you belong, where you know people and they know you. If you could come here for a couple, a, a year or two or less, and then leave and have nobody know that you're not here, part of that's on us. But let's be honest, part of that's on you. If you come and don't connect with any people, don't get engaged in any small group, you don't serve in any way, and then you leave and no one calls and no one checks up on you, we gotta work on that, but so do you. Because there's something more to church than just come and see. It means you come and belong. You belong to people who get in your life and you're in their life and in small groups and in ABF Bible studies and women's Bible studies and men's groups where you're connecting with other people and figuring out how do I do life because I belong to other other people, not just to myself. A Christian mindset sees the church and sees relationships within the church and the use of our gifts in the framework of we belong to Christ and we belong together. It means that there's a sameness, a one-anotherness that's central to what the church is all about. When I hear that word same, immediately as I was preparing this sermon, I thought of Times in my life when I've, I've said that word same, and I think of a, of, a, of a basketball scenario in particular, when I'm going up for a rebound, and when my coach would taught us how to go up for a rebound, you go up for a rebound as hard and fast as you can go up to get that ball, and you're going up with a level of intensity because everyone else is trying to get that ball off that rim. And when you go up, the goal is to grab that ball, and it was grab the ball and then shake like a dog. That's what we were taught. Grab the ball and shake like a dog coming down. But the key is, is that as you're going up, if another teammate is also going for the same ball, another teammate needs to call out, same. And why? Because if two guys are going after the same ball at the exact same time and they belong in the same team, the chances are they're either gonna come down with it together, it's gonna be a jump ball, a turnover, or they're gonna fumble the ball and they're gonna knock it out of each other's hands. So someone needs to call out, same. And in fact, hey, same team. And when I hear that word same, and I think of that context, I think that's what the body of Christ is, that we are on the same team. And can you just be reminded of that the next time you have a conflict with somebody in this body? Can you just be reminded you're on the same team? Can you be reminded of that in the context of your family? Have you, have you ever had those kind of conversations? We have. You know, where you're kind of getting at each other, and you're like, hey, hey, what well, time out? Same team, right? I know I'm winning and you're losing, but it's the same team, right? You know, but same team, right? Same, same, same team. Look, it's easy to forget that, is it not? We get so individually focused, my little ministry, my things, my feelings, my, my, I, I want it to be this way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we forget. Look, let's remember, the devil is the enemy. Just remember that. Sin is the problem, and we're on the same team. That's the point. And this thing, God has given you gifts to be used in the helping of that same team, The body of Christ was designed to be both diverse and unified. And when that happens, it is something that is beautiful to behold, especially by those outside of the church. Finally, not only do we live in unity, not only do we have to think humbly, but we're called to serve actively. I'm probably gonna spend less time here than what many of you would like, but I'm doing that intentionally. Because here's the deal. If you don't get the right mindset and you don't understand the church, I don't care what spiritual gifts test you take, 
or how you think you're gifted, it won't matter one little bit. You could be the most gifted person in the world, but if you're full of yourself and you don't know how to get along with people, you're absolutely worthless to the church. You're absolutely worthless. So you gotta have a humble mind and you have to understand the context of the body and realize this is bigger than you. And if those things are in place, then we can have a discussion about spiritual gifts. Because the greatest hindrance in your life to not discovering your spiritual gifts is not taking a spiritual gifts test, as valid as that may be, but the greatest hindrance is having a wrong attitude about yourself or the church. Verse six, this is a helpful summary. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. What do I mean by a spiritual gift? Here's what I mean. I mean any ability that is empowered by the Spirit that's used in any ministry of the church. So any ability that's empowered by the Spirit, in some cases they may be abilities that somebody had prior to coming to Christ, so you were really good at it before you came to Christ, and now you're even better at it because the Spirit of God is controlling it. Or it's something supernatural that God has supplied to you differently or uniquely after you came and put your trust in Jesus. Some gifts are natural, some are supplied sovereignly by the Spirit supernaturally, but the fact of the matter is they're all empowered by the Spirit. So how do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Well, they are it's the things that you love to do. You're like, is eating a spiritual gift? No, not like that. <laughs> things you love to do, something you're good at, hard to be spiritually gifted and something you're not very good at, and that's why you need people around you to help you to say, hey, you know what, you're really good at that. And also some people who love you enough to say, let's try this, right? (laughs) And then something where you see fruit that's being born. And you know the best way to figure out what your spiritual gifts are? It's to begin using them in trial and error. To think less enough about yourself, that it doesn't matter if this doesn't work out because I'm trying to figure out what God is, is doing in my life through spiritual gifts, so you use them in trial and error. Well, that didn't work, so obviously it's not in this area. Let's go try this. And you begin to discover the beautiful thing about what God has done in and through you, and that's what the text says, that they differ according to the grace given to us. So you're trying to figure out how has God graced us? What is the thing that he has put within us? I remember sitting in an audience at about age, I think it was about seven years old, hearing a pastor preach, my heart was burning within me, like what that guy's doing, that's what I wanna do with my life. That didn't come from me, it didn't come from my parents, God put it there, I cannot explain that, and it never went away. Now I tried to figure that out through the course of my lifetime, I did the Bible studies at nursing homes, I botched a number of song leading moments in different youth ministry events, gave terrible sermons here and there, it tried to correct all sorts of speaking mannerisms and things of like that through um, intercollegiate speech debate and things like that. All of those things are part of the fabric of God putting together giftedness in order to bring me to where I am today. And you have the same story of a longing, a burden to see, you know what? This is what God's done in my life. This is the way that he's worked. You can see the fruitfulness, but those gifts are things that God has given and given by his grace. And then he says, let us use them. Let us use them. In other words, these gifts are meant to be tools, not decorations. Think of spiritual gifts like a hammer, not a set of curtains. 
as great as curtains are. I'm not anti-curtains. But the idea is this, that it's a tool that can be used in multiple scenarios. It's gonna be used over and over and over, and therefore he calls us in, to use them. Therefore, the bias here in the text is toward action. He's not gonna give us an exhaustive list. No matter what Paul does, he talks more about context than he does about the actual gifts. He just names gifts and then talks about how they're supposed to be used. Let's see this. So then he lists a number of them. There's seven gifts. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Notice, in proportion of our faith, that's as important as the word prophecy. In fact, I would argue probably even more important in context of what Paul is saying. He's essentially here encouraging those in the early church who have this gift, which was the gift of spontaneous revelation from God for practical solutions or practical situations. He wants them to use that gift in proportion to the faith or trust that God has given them. So again, it's the context that is most significant. And then verse seven, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So what's he saying? The point is less about the gift and more about the environment that the gift should be used in. So servants should serve, teachers should teach, encouragers should encourage, and they should do this regardless of where they live. And that's where some of you, I think, may be missing it. You think, unless it's like this environment, I can't use my gifts. And I will tell you, when you really understand spiritual giftedness, and when you really develop a humble mindset, it doesn't matter where God drops you in, or what your small group is like, or what neighborhood you live in, or what career you've been placed in, your gifts just emerge, because your mindset is, God, this is the way that you've made me and designed me, and no matter where you plant me, I'm gonna bloom. Especially if you're under the age of 30, I want to encourage you. There's a little bit of an entitlement mindset with the present generation, of which I'm still a little bit of a part of. We're used to getting participation awards for everything, right? And sometimes I run into this, that that there's just a mentality of I'm not going to serve unless it's an important role. And I want to encourage you, take the non-important, nondescript, and just bloom where you're planted, whether it's in your place of employment or in the context of the local church, and you'll be amazed to see the way that God surfaces your gifts and is able to show you how you have been gifted by him and how you can actually make a difference. And then he gives the last three. The one who contributes in generosity. This is not just... This is giving in general at one level, but I think he means in particular the one who contributes to the needs of others. And I think he adds the phrase in generosity because the more you have and the more you contribute, the harder it is to be sacrificial. What do I mean by that? I mean the more money you make, the harder it is to really sacrifice when you give. And what he's encouraging here is when you're gonna contribute to meet the needs of others, be sure that you push the line to sacrificial giving. That's his point. And then he talks about those who lead. To those who lead, be sure you lead with zeal. Why would he say zeal? Because people who have top shelf leadership gifts can coast. They can fake it. They can not work hard because their natural gifts would make everyone else think they're working hard. So he says, be sure you lead with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, be sure you do it with cheerfulness. Why this? Because people who have a gift of mercy, they tend to attract needy people. They, they can just smell you. It's just like, oh, they're kind, right? 
They don't, they don't come to me, right? They're like, no, no, he's not kind. So they go to you. And then they come to you and you're like, oh, all kinds of needy people. And you can end up having a begrudging spirit. Like if I have one more person tell me about their needs, I'm gonna go crazy. And yet the fact of the matter is God has given you the flavor and the aroma of mercy. And so you need to embrace that gift with cheerfulness. Yes, another needy person, come, come. Come all of you, come all over. Sit at my table, eat our food, or we're starving, but it doesn't matter, just come. And the idea is you're serving and you have a heart of mercy with cheerfulness, not a begrudging heart. The point of listing these seven gifts this way is simply that a Christian mindset or being a living sacrifice translates into tangible acts of service. A humble attitude, understanding the context of the local church, the body of Christ, and this bias for action, those are all part of Paul's first step in what it means to be a living sacrifice. So you wanna be a living sacrifice? You wanna have a Christian mindset? The first place Paul exhorts us is that you better find some way to serve. And so the question is this, where are you serving? Who are you serving? In what framework are you allowing the expression of your gifts to be able to bear the fruit that God has intended no matter how old you are, how young you are, no matter how long you've known Christ or how little you've known Christ, the fact of the matter is God has placed spiritual gifts in you and those gifts need to be stewarded, need to be used, and need to be maximized for God's glory and the benefit of people around you. You see, church, a Christian mindset was meant to work. And how does it work? It works through the use of spiritual gifts. And so let's be a church that's marked by humble people who understand how they've been gifted and through their spirit-empowered gifts find ways to serve one another to the advancement of God's kingdom and also to the praise of his glory. Now on the sermon notes today, or if you didn't bring them, that's okay, but we're gonna close a little differently this morning. There is a little worksheet on the back. Here's how we're gonna end today. I wanna give you a few minutes, about two or three minutes, to work through the questions that are on the back of the sheet, because I want you to do something today, or if you didn't, don't have one of these, there's a copy of the questions here, and the questions are these. First, how has God gifted you? And we're gonna take a few moments just, just to think about and pray through, or write down, even better, write down, what are the ways that you feel like God has gifted you? It's not proud for you to write down how God has gifted you. It's actually proud for you to say, I'm not doing any silly thing after church like this. I don't need to do this. No, you probably do especially if that's your attitude. I'm just saying. So um, <laughs> then passion. What are you passionate about? Passionate about not writing things after church. That's what I'm passionate about. What are you passionate about? You're passionate about things that you're, you love to do, that you get excited about, things that are thrilling to you inside, outside the church. And then what opportunities are possible for you to apply those gifts? So let's take a few moments just as we conclude and uh, have some music we'll be playing and then I'll pray at the end just to think and pray through those three critical questions.
pray together. Father, we ask you to now send us forth from here with hearts that are ready to serve one another. Pray that you would create a army of people who want to serve you and know you and love you. Pray that you'd help us to learn how to discover the gifts that you have given to us in the context of this body. Thank you that this church lacks nothing that you are calling or inviting her to do. And we pray that as a people we would be marked by humble, active, contextual service of one another. So Lord, help us to be the kind of people who are living sacrifices that really work, who serve. Help us not to make it about ourselves. Help us not to sideline our gifts because of fear or anger or frustration. But instead, God, make us a people whose joy and delight is to put our bodies on that altar and say, God, here I am, I'm yours, so change me. And now, even today, would you lead me? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.